I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Much Ado About Anyone But You edition. It's Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. On today's show, Anyone But You, it's a rom-com. It stars Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell. It's based on Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. And uh, curiously, it turned from a... This is very unusual. This pattern, some people have said, is actually unprecedented. It turned from a box office disappointment in its open weekend into... A pretty considerable box office upside surprise uh, we will discuss um, and we'll be joined for that segment by Slate's own Heather Schwedell. And then The Boy and the Heron is the latest from the great, great Japanese master Hayao Miyazaki, who's come out of retirement, I suppose. He's retired and unretired a couple of times. He's now in his 80s to lead a team of 60 artists. It's an exquisitely hand-drawn anime feature about the griefs and wonders of childhood. And finally, the Golden Globes have returned. Can the disgraced award show rehab itself? Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. And for our first segment, we're going to be joined by Heather Schwedell of Slate. Hey, Heather. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah, delighted to have you. Welcome back. And thank you for filling in for me. I had a little a little twisted ankle snafu spent yesterday, raised icing, Advil, and uh, unable to walk. So you were uh, una- unable to see the movie. So you stepped in for me. Very, very much appreciated. All right. Well, by way of intro, Sydney Sweeney may be known to listeners as the ever sardonic daughter in season one of White Lotus. She was also in Euphoria. Glenn Powell, meanwhile, was Hangman in the latest Top Gun. So basically, we're talking Hepburn and Tracy here. They star in a Cute Meat, followed by Boy Loses Girl, Girl Loses Boy rom-com based on Much Ado About Nothing. Anyone But You has the great good sense to relocate itself early on from the US of A to Sydney, Australia. It's notable, I would say, for being an almost complete box office anomaly. Uh, it opened to tepid reviews in business then. Something, what? Word of mouth, lack of other options, like a hunger for good-looking young people in a rom-com. Audiences have found it, and they've turned it into a like kind of not even minor hit, really. As I said, I was unable to see the film. Heather's going to talk about it instead. But in the meantime... In the clip, you're going to hear the main characters, played by Sweeney and Powell. They're swimming in the ocean, and Powell's character is Ben. He's, well, let's just say struggling. Let's listen. Can you not swim? I'm an excellent swimmer. Why are you so out of breath? I'm fine. Are your eyes closed? I think it's dark. Why are you so out of shape? You have like a 10 pop. I'm not out of shape. I've been to 295, 300 once. I just don't do cardio. Oh my God, you're hot girl fit. I'm not hot girl fit. Okay, my bad. We'll see you at the boat. Wait. 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 All right, well, Dana, I'm going to pretty much hand the ball off to you, but by way of getting it going, let me just say, like, I kind of larfed. I mean, I'm not rolling in the aisles, but I enjoyed listening to the clip. I kind of regret not seeing this movie. What you What'd you make of it? Oh, my God. I went into this with so much goodwill. I mean, I, as listeners to the show may know from me endorsing the movie Reality that Sydney Sweeney starred in last year, uh, I, I venerate Sydney Sweeney. I think she's so, so gifted, and I couldn't wait to see her do comedy after having seen her do a lot of impressive things in, in straight roles. 
And the trailer for this looked really fun. And, you know, like like many people out there, I'm constantly thirsting for the rom-com to come back. And I'm willing to cut a lot of slack for a rom-com. It doesn't have to be the greatest movie in the world to entertain me. Just beautiful people in a beautiful place doing a few funny things would have really <laughs> hit the bar for me. But I don't think I laughed once at this movie. I found it so incredibly thin and really kind of cringy. I don't know. I, I, I was really embarrassed to be seeing it <laughs> and, uh, and very sad that these two very appealing leads couldn't have pulled off something better. In fact, it is Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney that make it work to the extent that it does work. And they really deserved a better script. But I, I, this really made me think, especially with the Much Ado About Nothing framework, which is really, really heavily n- hammered home to the viewer by their constantly being quotes from Much Ado About Nothing that just appear in different places. Like there's like a sign in the airport that has a quote from Much Ado About Nothing or a book with the title from, the, from a quote from Much Ado About Nothing. Like we get it. But the fact that this movie didn't work in part because it had no real conflict and there wasn't any way to create meaningful obstacles between the main couple getting together made me think about the truism, but which I think is pretty solid that part of why rom-coms have a hard time working in the present day is that, you know, there are so few social constraints on people getting together, right? There is not nearly as much of a sort of social and sexual code about what women should do and men should do and partners should do and what it means to be faithful or fall in love. All of those things have, you know, for the greater good of society, become much more relaxed uh, in terms of codes and rules. But that also means that it's it's really hard to make meaningful obstacles in a rom-com. And I thought of that because in Much Ado About Nothing, the meaningful obstacle that the couple has to overcome is that the other sort of nice couple, they're named Claudio and Hero in the Shakespeare play, the couple who is getting married and who, you know, Beatrice and Benedict, the characters that are the inspirations for Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney, um, are at their wedding, right? And then the wedding is called off at the altar because there's this false claim that Hero, the woman, has been unfaithful. And it was all a setup and it isn't true, but the husband thinks it's true, right? And so then Beatrice and Benedict have to sort of figure out how they're going to deal with this breach in code. Now, none of that happens in this movie, and it's sort of hard to figure out how it would happen in a world where codes have changed enough that the couple getting married is two women, right, in this movie. Um, But without that, without some sort of obstacle, it really just does become like these people are just dumb and unpleasant. (laughs) Heather, what about you? I know you're a rom-com aficionado. What was your response to this movie? I'm glad this movie is doing well because I want more of this sort of movie, the the mid-budget rom-com. But I also, this is one of the genres I love most. So I feel like I I have a lot of criticisms of it, too. And um, I think the clip we heard was sort of a good example. Like, that's maybe one of the best bits in the movie. And it's not really that great, the hot girl fit thing. And also, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. A, A hot girl fit person would be a girl who does do cardio and doesn't lift, not the other way around. Uh, It did seem like it was sponsored by the Australia Tourism Board at times, though, or like the whole movie is just an excuse to go to Australia and and like how they come up with Australia. Like, oh, we've got Sydney Sweeney. Let's go to Sydney. Um, It was nice to have the production value of that, but it, it just sort of represents 
the flimsiness of the movie. Like, why are we all here? Eh, they wanted to go to Sydney and make a rom-com. And Apparently, I, they, went, <laughs> they meant to go to Italy in the first place. But for whatever reason, maybe they got tax credits in Australia. But it was a last-minute change to make it Australia. And I agree, Heather. It needs to be explained. I mean, <laughs> they're also at this incredibly, incredibly vast, wealthy estate that belongs to the parent of one of the people getting married. Am I getting this right? Right, mm-hmm. the, the, the stepdad the step of one parent, of the brides. Yeah. And as often happens in rom-coms, we don't know anyone's job. We don't know where anyone's income comes from. All we know, I think, about anyone's work life is that Sydney Sweeney is a law student who doesn't like law school and is thinking about dropping out of law school. Other than that, everybody is just sort of rich and jobless. And in addition to being economically unrealistic, it's just... There's so much characterization, there's so much development that could have happened from understanding why there's a vast estate in Sydney that this couple lives at. But Julia, what about you? What was your response to anyone but you? I mean, all right, I recognize all of these criticisms and in particular that these two leads, it's it's this funny thing where both of the performers are very charming and charismatic, but the roles and situations they've been asked to perform are so off-putting and unpleasant and and it's a very tell don't show characterization it's like sydney's so smart she's so smart b's so smart and you're like she is how smart is she <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't do anything that seems that smart and that he's like a complete buff boy blank and so i don't know i guess in my own heart the hunger for there to be this kind of story, which is such a fun thing that Hollywood has made over time, and and also Shakespeare, outweighed the annoyances and thinnesses. And I was like, you know what? I could use a a rom-com right now. I would like to not think about anything else going on in the world. This'll do. I will also say the heavy-handed Shakespeare painted on the walls I did not like. I did enjoy the light touch of people actually saying the lines every so often and being like, that's the first time anybody's ever said that. (laughs) That did make me laugh. Do you guys think Much Ado About Nothing is famous enough to have this sort of adaptation? This is going to make me sound illiterate, but like, I didn't think it worked because I don't think the average person knows that story or, and the movie wasn't aside from having it, you know, printed on the wallpaper, it wasn't really in conversation with it enough. It, it just seemed like, why did they do that? <laughs> I don't think you would need to know much to do about nothing specifically in order to kind of get the, the very durable plot structure of these two people hate each other, but their friends are trying to get them together anyway. You know, it seems like it's mainly borrowing that framework from Much Ado About Nothing. I'm not sure. I mean, I I went into it knowing that it was a recasting of that play. So I actually looked at a plot summary of the play beforehand and was reminding myself of, you know, those obstacles I was talking about and wondering how they would be staged in the modern day. And sure enough, they were just let go of completely. Like, if you really had to say, what is the one thing that's keeping these people from getting together? It's just simply that they're rude. (laughs) They're rude and dumb and don't realize that they should stop ruining their family and friends weekend in Australia until it's too late. Can we talk about the old Hollywood patina of gossip drama that has surrounded this film? I feel instinctually somehow, Heather, that you will be able to give us a primer on this. Yes, definitely. During filming of this movie, um, there was a lot of paparazzi presence you know, capturing pictures of Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney. And it kind of all swirled into these rumors that they were 
dating. And at the time, Glenn Powell had a girlfriend and Sydney Sweeney is also engaged. And maybe the girlfriend like unfollowed Sydney Sweeney on Instagram. And then they broke up. Um, Glenn Powell and uh, his girlfriend broke up. So there was this thing like, ooh, are they together? And looking back on that, it seems like, was that just PR? I mean, that definitely made me more interested in seeing the movie. And um, I just read this very fun novel, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. So it sort of has me in the mindset of um, classic Hollywood PR relationships. And I do think that added to the interest in the movie because I think all of that seems to have fizzled. Sydney Sweeney is, you know, with her fiance and we haven't heard a peep about maybe them being together or maybe, I don't know, that was just something that the internet created and it it was never a thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I sort of heard glancing references to that along the way and um, it's hard to tell whether it was a, I, I don't know that I believe it was a canny promotional strategy or just the kind of amplification that you can create if you've got pictures of people making out on set and, you know, unfollowing mysteries to solve on social media. But watching it, I guess they have some chemistry. I mean, the parts are just so thinly written that it's just hard to tell. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I was expecting that drama to add some kind of frisson to watching the movie of like, ooh, were they or weren't they? And I don't know. They seem game and like they're, they seem like they're both good actors, you know, who can capably convey mutual attraction on film. And I, I didn't, it didn't feel like it added a layer for me. It added a layer of interest that made me interested in us doing this topic. So I guess to that degree it worked, but it didn't really add a layer to watching the film for me. Can I mention one more thing that bothered me in the movie? And maybe this is, you know, like weird waters to wade into. But I felt like the character played by Gaeta, the rapper, who is plays the brother of one of the brides, is a real racial stereotype. And I really didn't enjoy that character's presence in the movie. So he's like the black best friend who talks really street and is really cool, but we know nothing about his life. And he didn't seem like he belonged in his family, like the rest of his family are these very, you know, educated, cultured, like elegantly dressed black women. And then he's this like really street dude. And that made it seem like he was sort of putting on a persona himself, which made it seem like he was an insecure person. But we know nothing about him except that he's just sort of the best friend who, you know, is there to to help grease the wheels of this central white heterosexual romance. I don't know. I felt like this movie's attempt to be inclusive by having one of the brides and her family be multiracial wound up kind of uh, backfiring on itself. <laughs> and and that character just seemed like a just something that that Gaeta should not have had to play. Oh, it's interesting. I don't think that characterization read as street to me, particularly. He it read as sort of like artsy daffy in a way that fit in with the like, we're so creative and where did all our money come from family? But to me, it fit in with the broader issue that like none of these characters seems particularly grounded in any way outside of the function that they're supposed to play in the plot. But it did because all of the characterizations are so thin, the, yeah, the convenient black best friend did seem a little thin. All right. Well, the film is anyone but you check it out or don't on a plane, on a train, on a boat. Heather, thank you so much for stepping in on behalf of Steve and imparting your wisdom to us. We're glad to have you. Of course. Thank you. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast. We pause and we discuss business. Dana, what do we have today? Steve, just two items of business. The first one is just a small correction from last week when we were talking about the movie Maestro. I said in our conversation, apparently, I don't remember this, but apparently I located the Tanglewood Music Festival, which some characters in the movie attend in upstate New York. It is, of course, in Massachusetts. It's in Stockbridge, or I guess between Lenox and Stockbridge in Massachusetts. I actually would have gotten that right on a multiple choice test, but in the moment, I forgot it. So thanks to the listener who wrote in to correct me on that. Other than that, we have only one item of business, and that's to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. We have a listener question this week from a listener named Scott, who wrote in to ask us if there are any cultural works that left a big impression on us in the past, but that we are afraid to revisit because we're worried that they won't hold up. This is a really excellent question. I know I have a couple of answers for it. I'm curious to hear what Julia and Steve have to say. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear us talk about that topic at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member, and you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, on with the show. All right, well, Hayao Miyazaki lays a very easy claim, in my opinion, many people's opinion, to being one of the world's truly great living cinematic masters. He's the author behind, of course, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away. We discussed Ponyo several years ago. He has retired and unretired at least a couple of times. He's now well into his 80s. His new film, The Boy and the Heron, is elegiac in the extreme. Uh, it returns to the sources of creative selfhood in the griefs and longings of deep childhood. It begins, as many such classics do, with the primal loss of the mother, this time to the war, the World War II, the war in the Pacific, and the bombing of a hospital that she's in, after which the young protagonist, Mahito, must accept his father's marriage to his aunt and the imminent arrival of a half-sibling, and also a totally disruptive to him move to the countryside to help him find himself by way of escaping himself, kind of, a mysterious heron begins to pester and beckon him. 
As mentioned uh, up above, this is a painstakingly hand-drawn animated film. It's obviously exquisite to look at. Uh, I should say also it's available in either a dubbed or a subtitled form. What we're going to do is listen to a piece of the English language trailer. This is the dubbed version. You'll hear the child actor Luca Padovan as the boy and Robert Pattinson as the very raspy gray heron. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. What exactly are you? <laughs> your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie, but I have to see. Dana, let me start with you. I mean, about Miyazaki, no superlatives are inappropriate, I think. And uh, about this film in particular, and we hear it in the trailer, it's the ability to be both obsessed with childhood and unsentimental about what is terrifying about being a small, vulnerable creature in a human world. Um, what did you make of his his latest movie? I mean, this movie is both beautiful, as you mentioned, visually and astounding kind of thematically and conceptually and I think one of his more difficult to metabolize like if you haven't for some reason seen a Miyazaki movie I would not say that this should be your first one because it's so deep in his head and in his own past it's his own most autobiographical movie he's made so far uh, with a lot of elements from his own childhood during the war incorporated into it and if you know his work already, it's, it's sort of an extraordinary exploration of themes that have come up throughout his career. But if you don't know his work already, it takes place in such a, I don't know how to describe it, such a sort of conceptual and vaporous fantasy universe that you might be frustrated because it's not a movie that can be kind of laid out after having seen it as a, an allegory for anything in particular. Or it's not, it would be really hard to make a flowchart of this movie's story and even say what is happening to whom when. Because there are so many transformations. We can get into what some of them are. But, you know, there's animals that transform into humans and portals to different kinds of worlds. And it's not sci-fi. People aren't going into space. It's more like inner space. And uh, that all sounds very vague, but it's true that when you're seeing this movie, you need to let yourself be swept up in it and not not ask it questions. Let it ask you questions. I mean, speaking of questions, I think it's worth mentioning that the title of the movie in Japanese, which I wish they had kept for the for the English version, is How Do You Live, which is the title of a Japanese novel uh, that shows up once the boy in the in the movie reads it. Miyazaki read it as a child. It's from, you know, that period when the movie takes place. And that's really what the movie is sort of asking. I feel like it's a man in his 80s looking back on his career and his life and asking really ultimate existential questions about what life is and how to proceed and how to grieve and how to live through suffering. And it's really a lot for a movie that might look like a kid's movie on the surface. Mm. Julia, yes, it's, it's a very, very intense experience. That's It's almost like, and, and I really don't say this glibly, but it is almost as if you are shrooming while you're watching it. It doesn't follow a linear narrative logic. Uh, it, it takes you into a half-waking, half-dream state for essentially close to three hours, beginning with the utterly equivocal, often very sinister figure of the heron. What'd you make of this? For whatever reason, and I've been trying to think about why, I was ready to go for this ride with 
Miyazaki. And I, I have long had the experience, I think, including for this show, of watching Miyazaki movies. And I remember going to see even before we started the show, Howl's Moving Castle. Like, you know, I've, I've followed along. I'm being like, beautiful, but not really my thing. I had trouble myself going along the fantastical flights and, you know, why are they pursuing the old woman through the weird twisted castle and trouble going with it. And this is the first new Miyazaki I've seen since I saw Kiki's delivery service and completely fell for that slightly more linear movie. And so for whatever reason, it was as though that was like an inoculation against being irked by the flights of fancy or something for me like I was or or maybe it was just the birds because I'm a bird person so all of the even though the birds are often menacing and or possessed in this movie um just the attention to detail of like real bird movement and menacing hypothetical bird movement was really beautiful and fun to watch for me specifically so I don't know if it's the birds or kiki or what But I was like, cool, totally along for the ride. And then when we walked out, my husband sort of had the same reaction you did, Dana, of like, that was a few bridges further than (laughs) totally made sense to me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I just liked it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I with my cards on the table, I admire him, Miyazaki, more than I love him. And I love him more than I enjoy him. And so, funnily enough, Panya was the first... In the theater for our show, Panya was the first of of Miyazaki's movies that I saw from beginning to end. I'd caught bits of my kids watching Mononoke and Spirited Away and were just totally captivated by them. That said, Panya stayed with me for for years. I mean, I don't know how long it's been since Panya came out, but I mean, if it's a decade, I wouldn't be shocked. And it's it's still in me. And and this one's going to be as well. I mean, beginning with the figure of the heron, which we haven't described yet. Um, it is described in detail in Dana's review and various reviews, so I don't think this is a spoiler. But the heron begins as something like a heron, recognizably the bird known as a heron with one unusual feature, which is that I'm, I don't know what kind of noises actual herons make, Julia, but my sense is they don't quite squawk in this sort of scabrous, slightly, you know, scavengy bird way. But over time, what happens, Dana, your description of it in your review is so beautiful. I almost want you just to repeat it. It's so in a way surprising and alienating, and yet it works so perfectly. Can you just just describe what happens to this heron in the course of it becoming a character in the film? Oh, well, I mean, just his transformation is kind of grotesque, right? His transformation into a human isn't that, you know, his body becomes like a human body. It's that the heron's mouth opens up, the bill (laughs) opens up, and this really ugly head of kind of an old troll-like man with a warty nose and a raspy voice emerges from the mouth. Well, I think what I say in the review is he's wearing the bird's bill like a hoodie. (laughs) You know, he just walks around like that That with an open bird mouth over his head for the entire movie. (laughs) And that's sort of how the whole movie works. Like it's not, this is why I say, and I should establish that I, unlike the two of you, am a complete Miyazaki head and probably have seen my neighbor Totoro maybe more than any movie in my 
my life mm. because it was the first movie my daughter ever watched and the only movie she wanted to watch for several years after that. Um, and I keep up with everything he does. And so to me, the fact that this movie was in some ways alienating and, and not as um, entrancing as some of his earlier movies is not me giving a thumbs down. It's more like, wow, he's really going there. Oh, abso- he's absolutely. going to some yeah. strange and sometimes unpleasant places. And that's what the transformation of the heron is like. And in this sort of magical world that the two enter, the heron as the troll eventually leads Mahito into this kind of alternate world. And I won't reveal more than that, but into what I was calling this kind of inner space in which he's exploring the past and, you know, the kind of border between life and death. And a lot of what happens in that space is both extremely confusing and not particularly um, soothing or magical in some ways. The magic is a scary, disturbing magic. Exactly that, Dana, right? It's, it's what, what stayed with me about Ponyo is what's going to stay with me about this movie, which is that we tend to get child, as adults, get childhood wrong over and over and over again. We falsify it with sentimentality. We, we forget what's f- genuinely frightening, that, that what is genuinely frightening about childhood is what is genuinely magical about it, which is that you don't yet fully conceive of the world as a world. You, it, the world is sort of inside you and you are in the world in this slightly boundaryless way. And the things that happen around you don't cohere in a narrative. We don't know how to narrate the world or entirely objectify it. And so being awake and being asleep, dreaming and being conscious, uh, being passive and being active, being almost physically still a part of your parents, physical bodies, right? All of these sort of boundaries that become distinct as you mature and then and then harden and then become highly defensive and brittle and then you die, right? That's sort of one way of looking at it. I mean, what Miyazaki is saying, first of all, he gets you back into that frame of mind and now he's doing it as a man who in his 80s knows that he is entering the same liminal state, you know, at the end of his life. And, and so in that sense, it's like the depth of feeling and connection to childhood now is as alive for him as it's ever been. But what that means in terms of traditional filmmaking is something far less coherently narrated and, and impossible to summarize, right? So if you go with it, it's an extraordinary and in many ways frightening journey. But it's 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 just one of the more remarkable movies I've, I've seen in a very long time. Can we talk about, and, and Dana, I'd be curious to hear you put it in context, the Disney references, like there are so many, you know, there's sort of these grandmotherly figures at the country house who, of whom there are seven and who have extremely seven mm. dwarf vibes. Um, they're small and they each have sort of one distinguishing feature, a schnoz or a pair of glasses or a funny chin or something. And there's a moment where a female character is in a glass, you know, coffin type figure. And there's even to, to go further afield, you know, when, when you get into the inside world, underworld, alternate world, um, I think part of what I liked about it and part of why the how to live theme, I agree with your comment about the title, Dana, is that the movie almost lands on a kind of rejection of um, getting lost in your inner world and Fantasia and a, mm. and an argument for, to the degree that any Miyazaki movie is a linear argument for anything, but an argument for just engagement with, with life and with little things and daily things, which um, 
you feel the tension of in the movies, right? The beauty of the daily versus the the kind of mystery of the fantastical. And, but even, even some of that plot without spoiling it has like a bit of a Marvel quality of like, if the thing on the widget on the blah, on the blue doesn't get blah, the like big black orb will collapse. And it's like, what, where are we? This feels, where's Scarlett Johansson? This feels very Marvel in a way. Like, uh, do you, did you, am I making that up? And I, I know obviously, Miyazaki is um, a close watcher and student of American animation and Disney as it evolved, even as he has been evolving his own practice in the in the decades of his work. But did you think anything specific was going on there or just little Easter eggs? I guess, I mean, to me, it seemed like the, the references were more, they had much more to do with old fairy tales. You know, I mean, if Snow White is in there and being locked in a glass coffin, it seems more like the grim version or wherever it is that Snow White originally comes from. I don't know. I didn't think of Disney or Marvel. I know that Miyazaki has specifically said in the past, I'm looking at a quote from him right now where he says that Disney movies to him show nothing but contempt for the audience. You know, I think mm. he is trying to work in it in a completely different realm from that. But, you know, they're both drawing from common sources. They're both drawing from Charles Perrault fairy tales and Brothers Grimm fairy tales and old folk tales and, and things like that. It's just that Miyazaki yeah. is exploring all that stuff in a less comforting and, and harder to read way. The movie is The Boy and the Heron. It's, I saw it uh, in Japanese. I'm probably going to go back and rewatch it uh, uh, dubbed. I'm very curious to see what about the movie is more accessible to me, an English speaker, if I do that. I mean, I I've, I also saw it in Japanese. I don't know about you, Julia, but I would just say that Miyazaki's movies tend to have really, really excellent dubbing into English. So it's not at all the case that, you know, you need to pass some purity test by seeing it in Japanese. I believe the voices in the English language version are done by Robert Pattinson is the heron. Florence Pugh is one of the characters. Willem Dafoe is in there. So there's going to be some good voice acting in the American version. Yeah, Dana, I, I, thank you for saying that. It's not like some chinso afterthought a dubbing job. So uh, pick a way to see this movie. You should see it, I think. And and uh, if you do, shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. The Boy and the Heron, it's in theaters now. And this is one to see in the theaters. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Well, in comparison to the ever-absurd pomp of the Oscars, the Golden Globes were delightfully louche. Uh, they threw together TV and movies promiscuously. The stars mingled. They ate and drank. Perhaps there was some talking out of school. They were kind of like, for lack of a better word, they were kind of like naughty. But it culminated in a kind of terrible, like really meaningfully terrible scandal. A uh, quick summary is that the organization, the uh, Foreign Press Association, which is always name-checked, and I don't think anyone watching ever knew exactly what it referred to. It sounded like 
a real thing doing the voting was uh was racist it was sexist it was and it was also ostensibly corrupt uh and it reminds me of the old woody allen joke and the portions are so small um the show has returned now with mixed reviews and new ownership. It's owned by Dick Clark Productions. Uh, one thing they tried to keep somewhat the same is they hired a comedian. Uh, in this instance, due to various factors, including the strike, uh, at the 11th hour, this was the comedian Joe Coy. Um, and his performance has been ruthlessly panned by critics on social media in real time and otherwise. Um, let's get a little taste of his opening monologue, uh, which went over just like a lead balloon in the room. I mean, uh, anyway, let's, let, let's have a listen. The key moment in Barbie is when she goes from perfect beauty to bad breath, cellulite, and flat feet. Ah, or what casting directors call character actor. <laughs> some I wrote, some other people wrote. Robert De Niro's here. Yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. You got, you're kidding me, right? Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're laughing at. Look. I mean, Julia, we're going to get to, the, uh, to Joe Coy's performance. I do think it's just terrible form to throw your writers onto the bus in real time like that. Uh, he was dancing on his feet up there, kind of knew he was dying. But we have to get to something first, which is that your paper, the LA Times, really broke the story, really owned the story of just kind of how shoddy ethically the um, uh, Golden Globes were. Catch us up on the state of the scandal and, uh, and then talk a little bit about the show's return. Yeah, so actually, let me zoom out even further you know, the Golden Globes have been a fun party for a long time, and they've been, you know, periodically investigated and knocked for uh, various illegitimacies and scandals over time. So the the reporting that the LA Times did on the subject a couple years ago was sort of part of a journalistic tradition of digging into the HFPA every 10 years and finding something new and yucky to come up with. Um, in the past, there had been bribery scandals and the notion of people buying votes. Some of that stuff had been tamped down, but the investigation a couple of years ago was prompted by a lawsuit filed by an international journalist who you know, had not been admitted to membership um, and some debates among the HFPA members about whether, in fact, it was a, <laughs> a trade body for international journalists or um, a kind of cartel of self-dealing people who used their position for perks without actually serving international journalists. Uh, so the investigation started there, ended up determining that there were no black members among the voting body um, and some other financial chicanery and the response from Hollywood in particular around the lack of diversity among uh, the voting members cr created a Hollywood outcry and a boycott. So what interested me in talking about the Globes this year is just the struggle of this award show for legitimacy and, um, and, and kind of the changing award show landscape. We did get the ratings this week, and they were significantly up from last year. Last year, they aired in this kind of liminal state on a Tuesday. The ratings were terrible. Uh, Gerard Carmichael hosted. That was also awkward in a slightly different way, <laughs> very different comic, um, but it was sort of much more about the legitimacy scandals of the Globes. 
This award show monologue was bad in a different way of just being an extremely bad version of an award show monologue that was less about the Globes themselves. So I think the way I would frame it this year is that the Globes has been looking for a broadcast home since this boycott. It had a one-year deal with CBS now. The ratings were quite good, so maybe that will empower it to get another one. They had been hoping to go to Netflix. Later this spring, Netflix will be airing the SAG Awards, which is you know, the Actors Guild Awards, which rewards, which like the Globes, awards both film and TV, which is one of the fun things about the Globes is that it's a mix of Hollywood types, even as those lines have become blurrier. So the way I view this landscape is like, Netflix will air the SAGs, the SAGs are trying to kind of take the Globes's mantle as the fun party where people sit at tables and all the all the pretty ones are there. And despite the disastrous monologue, it just kind of felt like a normal globes on social media. Like, I think once you're back on primetime, people are like, okay, it's an awards show. I mean, all of the arcana I just described about the history of the voting body. Sure, it's interesting. But I think for people who like award shows, there was Taylor Swift in cool green sequins making faces. Like, what else do we want from award shows? Yeah. And also like, Dana, the like the A-list showed up, they were all there. And the winning an award seemed meaningful to the people who won them, Nolan, Christopher Nolan, Lily Gladstone. But I think I have, I maybe I have a different attitude toward the Globes than either of you. I mean, I've, I, they seem so completely discredited to me that a part of me is embarrassed that they continue to exist. I feel like, I mean, a scandal that we didn't even mention in Julia's pretty comprehensive lineup of scandals going back decades that the Globes have had about, you know, legitimacy and credibility and, and inte- the integrity of their voting body is that they had a Me Too scandal as well. If Brendan Fraser came out and said something about, you know, back, I don't know, a, a decade ago or something about being sexually assaulted by the, at the time head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. It just, they feel so retrograde and discredited to me that I, if I were one of the people accepting these awards, I would feel that the award was somewhat tainted. And yes, it's great to see people who did good work getting awards, right? I mean, Lily Gladstone's speech was beautiful. And I was very happy that Paul Giamatti got an award and got teared up when he shouted out teachers in his acceptance speech. Like this one's for the teachers. That was wonderful. But there's something about the entire framework of the Golden Globes that just feels to me like it should have disappeared into the sunset. I mean, Julia's talking about Gerard Carmichael's hosting last year. If you go back, I didn't watch it last year. And in general, I don't watch the Globes. I just tend to kind of ignore it even before these scandals, because it's just kind of a meaningless, glitzy award show that doesn't even have much predictive quality for the rest of award season. But... Gerard Carmichael's monologue about basically accepting the job only because they were paying him a lot of money and, you know, and and talking about the, the racial makeup of the voting body of the Globes seemed to me like such a last nail in the coffin. Like, I could not believe that the show would continue to stagger forward after he so completely <laughs> just took it down in his in his monologue, which you can find on YouTube and watch. Um, and I watched before before watching this year's. And I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I'm black. I'll catch everyone in the room up. 
that it just there's something strange to me about just metabolizing all of that and saying, well, nope, we're back and we're all going to be glitzy and have a red carpet and smile and pretend it didn't happen. I mean, we haven't mentioned this either, but there are two new categories that were introduced this year, I guess, in an attempt to bring more people in, right? These award shows are always trying to find a way to increase viewership by throwing in new categories or changing the way voting happens. So now they have... Um, this award called what was the popularity award called it's basically best box office right yes the award for cinematic and box office achievement <laughs> right which is basically which I saw, right i saw so someone good. share on twitter or threads or somewhere with the old don draper you know gif of like that's what the money is for <laughs> right exactly like you already got that vote just by taking the cash home in your pocket and barbie won that award and it was fun to see the cast and the director of that movie get up and greta gerwig tried to put a good spin on it by basically saying this is an award for the audience right this is an award for the people that show up to see movies which in the year of barbenheimer that's not a, a meaningless thing right that to, to, to be helping to bring theaters back is something great that that movie did but yeah adding that category seems really pandering and just really blurring the lines between artistic and financial achievement, which, you know, the whole award season already does. And then the other award was a best stand-up comedy award, which, and this seemed like another huge black mark on the show, Ricky Gervais won, right? Ricky Gervais, who has been so criticized for, you know, his transphobic, racist, just kind of stupidly you know, kind of red-pilled stand-up over the last few years. And I say this as someone who really loves The English Office. Like, I think it's one of the great TV shows of all time, you know, yeah. Ricky Gervais's creation. But yeah, he's gone way down the rabbit hole of just, you know, offending for the sake of offending in, in recent years. And so, I don't know, I kind of felt like I'm glad we're covering this this year in order to talk about these scandals. But I hope in the future we don't treat this award show like something we need to talk about every year. A couple things. One is that, do we take anything away, Dana, from the pattern of winners and losers here? I mean, Barbie basically got dissed until this idiotic, you know, Erzatz award. Uh, Oppenheimer, like, are, you know, I mean, I guess it's to be determined. The pattern's complete when we get the Oscars. I mean, to the extent one ought to have cared about this at all ever, which is, you know, dubious to begin with, it was always as a tea leaf for the Oscars, but where and and the the pattern here, such as it is, is Barbie really got dissed and Oppenheimer got elevated, and you know Lily Gladstone, I think probably is a favorite for Best Actress, but otherwise, Killers of the Flower Moon shut out on the major on the major awards. Uh, it, it, is it meaningful? And even if it is, do we care? Well, I think to get to the question of whether it's meaningful, it's maybe worth talking briefly about what reforms have been made to the body, which is that it used to be fewer than 100 journalists, none of them black, supposedly a representation of international entertainment journalists. But actually, you know, many of those folks were not practicing journalists at all. Um, and many practicing journalists were denied a mission to the body, the voting body. Um, and the the accusation was that that was sort of to keep to keep the group small and the and the perks flowing, um, and so this year it was a bigger voting group, about three hundred voters, journalists from all over the world, and um, a much more diverse group of voters. And you know, you uh, to me the most interesting win was Anatomy of a Fall for screenplay, unusual for a foreign language movie to win a screenplay award in any American awards show, um, and to me that was the place where you could see perhaps the result of the changes to the group. 
As far as the predictive power of the globe, Steve, I think that the statistic I read on last year's is that only four of the of the awards from last year went on to to win Oscars in the same category. So four mm. out of fourteen, that's not a, a yeah, hugely not a predictive set of awards. Okay, well, you know, I mean, whether these things should be countenanced at all in the first place, who knows? They're they're ritualized fun with a degree of kind of uh, silly pomp that you can believe in or not believe in to the extent you want. I actually weirdly enjoyed watching this. I thought Koi was not that bad. Um, but anyway, if you have feelings about the globe, let us know. Let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Steve, this may be weird timing given that there's uh, so much flurry right now about Substack and, you know, whether various newsletter writers are going to continue to use Substack as their newsletter hosting service because the site has been hosting some Nazi newsletters and there's now a boycott. So maybe it's a weird moment to endorse a Substack newsletter. It's very possible this newsletter will be moving off of Substack. But because Tom Skoka was in the news a lot last week, because he wrote... He wrote this beautiful piece for, for New York Magazine. This is not what I'm endorsing, but everyone should read it too. But Tom Skoka, the the venerable editor, writer who has worked for Gawker, The All, he worked for Slate for a while. Um, he's just somebody that, you know, I've, I've admired for many, many years. The brief period when he was at Slate, I just remember thinking, I can't believe I write for the same magazine as Tom Skoka. Uh, I've just always held him in, um, in great admiration. And he has a fantastic newsletter. So if you read his piece for The Intelligencer in New York Magazine last week about some health problems that he's had in the past year, which really is a beautiful, beautiful piece that ends up being about the American healthcare system and the precarity of life as a journalist in the 21st century and all kinds of things, but it's just beautifully written as everything Tom does is, then you should subscribe to his newsletter, not just because you will support him in this precarious career, but because it's one of the best newsletters out there. He also has a daily podcast. So if you subscribe to Indignity, his newsletter on Substack, you'll get every morning, every weekday morning, a little, it's usually under five minutes, a little four or five minute podcast that's just basically Tom Skoka reading you the headlines and uh, and talking a little bit about what's uh, above the fold in the Times and the Post and various big papers. Um, there's also, if you are have been following Skoka's career for a while and, and used to love his weather reviews on The All when that site existed, I was always, always a sucker for his weather reviews, which are these beautiful little just vignettes of a moment in the city where he talks about what the clouds looked like and, you know, how the, how the rain progress through the day, but they end up just being like little diary entries about life in New York. They're beautiful. So he's writing those again for Indignity. Anyway, you never know what's going to show up on Indignity, but it's basically a newsletter about the news as seen through the unique mind of Tom Skoka, and it's on Substack. I'm so glad you reminded me of that piece by Tom Skoka in, um, in was it in The Cut? It's in some New York Magazine derivative. The Intelligencer, in, yeah, it's online Intelligencer, in New York and, and, and it, yeah, Exactly, and in the magazine itself. It's just, God, writing about yourself is so hard. You always come off wrong, the just you know, or self-centered or something. He just pit, none of the pitfalls. He falls into none of them. It is such a beautiful piece about human frailty and his own frailty, and it's just nuanced and it's ambiguous exactly where it needs to be am- ambiguous. Uh, what an exquisite piece of writing and what a hero. I agree. Just truly one of the heroes of uh, American journalism over the last 20 years. Um, all right. Uh, Julia, what do you have? 
Okay, first I have a correction and then I have a promise endorsement. The So last week I endorsed Peak Finder, still endorsing Peak Finder, but also I later went back to learn more about the mountain I had sighted out of the window and identified and promised publicly on our podcast to climb. And it turns out that Mount San Antonio um, is, is the another name for Mount Baldy, which is a mountain near LA that is very treacherous to climb and that many people die on. And I think there are probably also ways for novices to climb it. But anyway, I just want to walk back slightly (laughs) that I'm going (laughs) to climb that mountain (laughs) and also publicly remind everyone in LA that you shouldn't necessarily climb every mountain you see. I blame just being a New Englander. I was talking about this with my husband afterwards and he's like, yeah, the mountain we can see out the window that's covered with snow 10 months of the year. Like, of course, we're not climbing that mountain. (laughs) And I was like, I grew up in New England. Literally any mountain you see, you can definitely get to the top of. (laughs) It's it's like my naive East Coast self. So anyway, um, you know, do a little Googling before you embark on any of the peaks that Peak Finder tells you about. But um, I think I also maybe misidentified uh, that it's in the San Gabriels, not the San Bernardinos. But anyway, we're going to explore the mountains east of the Santa Monica Range, which is what we usually climb this year in some fashion, probably not by climbing that exact one. Um, Okay, in our call-in show, I promised a life-changing wreck on the order of my frozen sliced bread wreck. And my question to my co-hosts is, do you use the right salt? Mm. I, mean, <laughs> I feel judged. <laughs> yeah, this is no no right answer territory. I mean, already. short answer is we have the fancy salt that we only use for fancy meals, which is like one of those flaky, you know, that you crumble with your fingers kind of salts. And then we just have a classic Morton salt with the cute little girl with the umbrella on it for things like baking and ordinary salting your breakfast eggs. Are those the right salts? Well, okay. So I agree that of all the basic salts, Morton is the best, mostly because of the logo, but I'm actually talking about the fancy salts. And Melissa Clark of the New York Times helpfully did a piece about all the salts after I made this promise to you all. But I just want to say that of the fancy salts, the Fleur de Sel de Camargue, the French fancy salt, is the good fancy salt. And that if you are using Malden... Like, why are you eating rock candy of salt? It's too much salt. It ruins everything. And I feel the same about that Jacobson salt. It's too big and too salty and too much. And like, just if you like fancy salt, but you have not tried Fleur de Sel from France, and there's a particular uh, one that we'll put a link to on the show page that comes in a sweet little tub, also with a good logo with a little cork lid. It's small, it's powdery, it has differentiation in the size of the flake. The salt is salty, but not, it doesn't come in these like honker hunks that just ruin specific bites. Like, I don't understand why people pay more for Malden, which is just a food ruining salt. So down with Malden, up with Fleur de Sel, get your fancy salt game in order. I I think I'm looking at it right now. Uh, le saunier de Camargue. Du Camargue. Yes. Yes. yes that's <laughs> it is the one. so fetch. It is so cute. Oh my God. If you are the sort of like, if you're the sort of person who's never going to pay more for salt and you just want your Morton or your diamond, enjoy. But if you are paying more for salt, pay more for the correct expensive salt, which is this salt. Okay. Good to know. All right. So um, I am going to endorse uh, 
Dave Brubeck doesn't need an endorsement from Steve Metcalf. He's got hundreds of millions of listens on um, Spotify. He's like one of the great jazz legends and he made, but I mean, it's got to be one of the three or four best-selling jazz albums of all time and time out. Funnily enough, I don't like that Dave Brubeck, the Brubeck that you kind of inherit ambiently, but it turns out there was a pre-timeout Dave Brubeck. I mean, I don't dislike it. Let me put it that way, but there was a pre-timeout Dave Brubeck in the 50s, sort of early to mid 50s, who is wonderful and it's substantially similar it just somehow is less a little bit ingratiating um i mean it's wonderfully ingratiating i shouldn't say that it's elegant it's all the things that i think people associate with brubeck a pianist of course and his you know endless collaborations with paul desmond the um alto saxophonist of paul desmond and brubeck made a series of records one of which is called Jazz Goes to College. He basically did a tour of colleges all over the country, kind of as a jazz proselytizer with Desmond and a small you know, quintet or quartet or whatever it was. And those records are beautiful. Interchanges 54 has a Paul, I believe Paul Desmond ballad called Audrey, which if nothing else, just listen to Audrey by Dave Brubeck off of Interchanges 54. That should be the gateway. know live at oberlin college is great live at the college of pacific is great uh jazz goes to college is iconic these are really beautiful really elegant albums and julia i think you especially you might really really love them so uh check them out cool julia thank you so much thank you steve thank you dana as always a like real pleasure yeah thanks steve you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Heather Schwedell, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.